listening to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Now, I want to, ask, I want to uh, answer a question today. And the question is this, why are we called the city? Why are we called the city? Why are we called the city? Now, um, you know, this is a question we had trouble answering uh, when we were in MacPherson. Uh, we were in MacPherson for a good uh, seven years, I believe, in the life of church. We met in a place called 50 MacPherson, Free Rifles Building, and then moved on to uh, our Mugam Road. And now when our guests would come to our church, they would see uh, the name of church. Hey, this is called The City. And they'll ask us a question like, hey, why are you all called The City? You're in MacPherson. And then we always have to come up with this like, uh, reply, and I think it goes like, uh, Singapore is a city-state. So technically, everywhere is a city. That's why we're called a city. Now, uh, some three, four years ago, we moved into the CBD, and uh, now we are really in the heart of the city. And so when people see our name, they go, oh yeah, it makes sense that you're the city, because you are in the city. Now, uh, I'd like to share with you a, uh, the real heart and uh, passion behind our, our name, the city. And I believe the name, the city, speaks more... Uh, into a vision rather than a geographical location. We're not named the city just because we are in the city, but uh, there's a real passion, heart, and desire uh, on the heart of leadership, and I believe on all of you all that are here and call this place home for the city. Today, I'd like to share with you about what it means to be in the city for the city. Tracking me. God's future redeemed world and universe is depicted as a city. Abraham sought the city whose builder and maker is God. Revelations 21 describes and depicts the apex of God's redemption as a city. His redemption is building us a city, the new Jerusalem. The city is the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. We began in a garden, but will end in a city. Cities are on the heart of God. Although we love the city that we live in, I'm sure all of us can admit that being a follower of Jesus today is really hard. We are fortunate to not live in persecution in Singapore, but there are forces at play today that war for your affection and devotion to God and His kingdom. Unbridled ambition, the lure of popular culture, the barrage of advertisements that stoke the fires of your disordered desires. With all that is around us, we have to ask ourselves the honest question. What does it mean to be a church for the city, to be witnesses for Christ? I have a couple of quotes for you. This is the Aldrin Sermon, after all. First quote by Will Willeman. He says this, The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. Next quote, Tim Keller says this, Christian community is more than just a supportive fellowship. It is an alternate society, and it's through this alternate human society that God shapes us into who and what we are. Many talk about becoming more missional, others about engaging and taking our culture back. But it's been my experience that uh, the typical Christian, rather than being fired up uh, and, and filled with zeal, are often threatened by these ideological campaigns and simply feel sad, confused, and overwhelmed. Recent Barner, Barner Research Group poll seems to confirm these fears. They report that the two defining characteristics of Christians in terms of cultural perception are irrelevant and extreme, out of touch and out of balance. 
in many ways, being the people of God, a disciple of Jesus, a Christ follower, a person after the kingdom, not just a Sunday morning allegiance, but a life oriented around His presence, places you today as a distinct minority. But not just that, being the people of God means that we are tasked with a purpose. It's not just a statement of identity, it's a statement of mission and purpose. It is to join God's vision of shalom, to bring life and flourishing to our world. Just as God is the creator who spoke life into existence, we are to create as well. Writers, theologians call and describe the people of God who are committed to being in the world but not of it, to bring flourishing and life to the world, to live counter-cultural, to live subversive to culture. They, these people call people who are committed to this vision a creative minority. And this is what I'd like to speak to you today. The city, a creative minority. Now, this is a new concept that I'm introducing on our 10th and we'll spend the next couple of years unpacking what it means to be a creative minority. John Tyson has this to say about what it means to be a creative minority. He says, A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in the living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Now, we're going to pass out this definition over the next couple of years, but this is what we are going after. Stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together, who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. During Jesus' time, the people of God faced a complex and challenging religious muni. The Jewish people were angry and frustrated at the overwhelming power of Rome and its blatant paganism. Sincere followers of God were wrestling deeply with how to be faithful and fruitful in a place where their values were no longer welcome. Many of those subgroups responded in ways that are eerily similar to our culture today. The Sadducees made deals with Romans. They cared about power, influence, and control. They broke their covenantal loyalty and sold out to the oppressing empire. The Pharisees were separatists. They functioned as a cultural police of sorts and lamented the decline of morality and faithfulness. The Zealots' vision was violent and pragmatic, seeking to seize control by any means necessary, including violence, terrorism, and or holy war. But Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our teacher, entered into the world and frustrated, offended, and confounded every one of those strategies. He came in with a different approach and message. He was subversive to the dominant culture, one that could be called a vision of becoming a creative minority. The phrase creative minority is used by a bunch of people, but it was made popular by uh, Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He says this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. Today, I'd like to share four distinct marks of a creative minority. This is what we're going after as a church, to be in the world but not of it, to be in the city for the city. I'm adapting this from a pastor named John Tyson. First mark of a creative minority is this, covenant, choosing authentic community over loose networks. John 13, a verse that I'm sure we're all familiar with, it says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love 
one another. We live in a relational moment where the needs of the individual have completely eclipsed the concerns of a larger community. Having a covenanted community means we choose accountable unity over loose networks. Now, there can be a utility for loose networks, such as LinkedIn has demonstrated, but a creative minority must be built on the foundation of a close-knit community that is both vulnerable and committed to one another. In such a community, individuals are not leveraging the network for their own good, but rather have devoted themselves to the well-being of one another and the betterment of the community in which they live in. We accomplish this with our life groups. In a world where human relationships have become a commodity that we utilize, as the church, we are to model covenantal community. The next mark of a creative minority is this. Narrative, a compelling alternative story. There's a famous line that goes, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. We are living in a time of hi- in history that is defined in many ways as story wars. People, organizations, and companies are competing for mind space and brand allegiance, and their primary tool is a compelling narrative. The gospel should surpass any competing story, but many Christians are only living out part of the good news, which gives rise to paralyzing doubts. The full biblical story is that we were created in God's image. The world that God created was perfect and He loved it abundantly. We were tempted and we fell, causing a separation. But Jesus died, rose again, redeemed us. And now we have the privilege of joining God in the renewal of all things here on earth. Yet sadly, many Christians are only taught half the story. Next quote by Mike Metzer. He says this, For 2,000 years, the gospel was recited in four chapters titled Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Final Restoration. Tragically, 200 years ago, the story was edited down to two chapters, the fall and redemption. The opening chapter of creation was largely forgotten. The new starting line was Genesis 3. It reminds people that they are fallen sinners. We are both. We are both made in God's image and sinners. Yet the two-chapter gospel accentuates our wounds. The four-chapter gospel elevates our worth as image bearers of God. The two-chapter story focuses on our deficiency. The four-chapter story reminds us of our dignity. There is redemption and restoration on the other side. In a world of hurry, we can be a people of rest. We can offer a compelling alternative story. In a world of strife, we can be a people of peace. In a world of loose networks, we can become a covenantal community. In a world of greed, we can be a generous people. In a world where the self is sacrosanct, we can live for the betterment of others. In a world of idolatry, we can live for the king and his kingdom. In a world of brokenness, hopelessness, and deprivation, we can be the answer. We can be the change. We can be light in the darkness. We can be the people of God. The next distinctive mark of creative minority is this, ethics, a distinct moral vision. Sex, money, and power are the idolatrous trinity that defines our culture's ethical vision. Where these good gifts of God have been deeply distorted, we have to have an alternative ethical vision that responds differently to and thereby restrains our culture's core principles. Tim Keller aptly describes two ways that the early church employed counter-cultural tactics. He says this, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. 
and the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. A distinct moral vision that is subversive to dominant culture. Don't get me wrong, we still enjoy the great gift of God that is human sexuality, but we do so in a faithful covenantal framework. We still experience the goodness of God that is granted through wealth, but we do it with a spirit of generosity and sharing. We still occupy positions of influence, but we do not use that power to build our own kingdoms, but we do it to serve others in the spirit of Christ. Leslie Newbeginner says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. A distinct moral vision, a distinct community that lives subversive to culture. And the last trait and mark of a creative minority is this, participation, exerting redemptive influence. When we think about integrating our faith into the rest of our lives, making a difference, or the the famous youth ministry rhetoric, let's change the world. Again, it is often just confusing. We live with the tension of believing that the gospel is the good news to bring healing to the world and feeling at the same time profoundly misunderstood as hateful bigots and wishful thinkers. Philip Yancey in his book, uh, Rumors of Another World, tells his story of the remarkable life of Ernest Gordon. I'd like for you to listen to this story even as I close shortly. Gordon was put to work building the Burma Siam Railway through the thick Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. The Japanese hated those who were willing to surrender rather than die, and their treatment of the soldiers was appalling. Prisoners were beaten to death and they, if they appeared to be lagging. They worked in 120-degree conditions and eventually 80,000 men died building the railroad. The prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager of provisions. Selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. Then one day, something shifted. One of the returning work crews was missing a shovel. The Japanese guard began screaming that if it was not returned, he would begin shooting the prisoners. All die, all die, the guard shouted. Tension blanketed the group. He lifted his rifle to shoot. And then one man stepped forward and confessed, I did it. The guard brutally beat him to death in front of the group. However, later that evening, it was discovered in a fresh inventory of the tools that they had simply miscounted. This act of selfless love transformed the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The truth of that verse lived and demonstrated, began to shake that camp. Yancey goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp. And in the midst of the hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone true. They started pooling the gifts and talents of the prisoners together to form what they call a jungle university. Gordon taught philosophy and ethics. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, math, natural science, and at least nine languages. They built a church as a sacred place of worship. They made their own paint and started a gallery with showings. They made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets, and musical theater. And when they were eventually released, they treated guards who had tortured and brutalized them with kindness and compassion. Yancey concludes the story with these profound words. He says this, Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root 
It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. Here's a statement I'd like to leave with you. The gospel is not an evacuation project. It is a call to transfigure a broken and lost world. This is who we want to be as a church, not just focus on ourselves, but to seek for the betterment of the world around us. This is the vision I hope to impress on your heart. And that is for us as a church to go beyond ourselves and begin to become salt and light to the world. We will spend the next year unpacking what this means for our church, but expect mission trips, expect more Love Our City initiatives, expect more events to enrich the body of Christ, more funds, and hopefully more people sent to the nations. I'd like to ask us a few questions. What will it look like for our church to own the geographical location that we are planted in? What will it look like for our church to meet the social and spiritual needs of the people in our vicinity? What will it look like for our church to reorient the way we do church and channel some of the energy that we spend grumbling, complaining, shaking our fists against the sinner to sitting down with the broken, the lost, the hurting? What would Singapore look like? How about we become that church? We build this city, we gather on Sundays, we come and serve and build the house of God with our time, our talent and treasure. We serve people. We exist to be a beacon of light, hope and answers. But we also build this city, the one that we are planted in. We gather on Sundays, but we scatter on Mondays to our workplaces, our schools, our homes to seek for the betterment of every environment that we are planted in. We are a creative minority. We are in the world, but not of it. We are in the city for the city, and together we build this city until the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdom of our God. That is why we are called the city. That is why we are the city. Now, some final thoughts. We've seen the church uh, grow from strength to strength. You know, I was looking through some old pictures, and our worship team uh, in the earlier days had about five people. Today we have a stellar worship ministry, not just one team, but many teams. How many of you are thankful for our worship teams here and our growing number of volunteers? Um, we were just talking about it in our last leaders meeting. We used to have leaders meetings, it was about six, seven of us contained a small table, but today uh, we have leaders meetings of upwards of 40 to 50 people in attendance, and uh, more and more of you are calling this place home, and more and more of you are stepping up to serve uh, our community. We've seen the church grow from strength to strength, but we've also seen the church grow from glory to glory. We've seen more miracles, more breakthroughs. Uh, the presence of God here every Sunday morning is just thick and just filled with breakthrough, and it's something that uh, we've seen uh, grow from glory to glory, and more people are encountering the liberating presence of our Lord. We've seen the church grow from strength to strength and from glory to glory. But it's my hope, my dream, that this church will not just grow from strength to strength, or from glory to glory, but it will go from generation to generations. That as a church, we will live for another 10. That this is not the high point of the church, but we will only grow from strength to strength, from glory to glory, and from one generation to the next. It's been 10 years in the life of the city. The church has grown considerably through the years. From a few young families and a handful of teens, the city has grown into a church that we can all be proud of. And people have grown up and matured in this church, both spiritually and naturally. Now, the verse some, from Psalm 145 comes to mind when I look at that video. It says this, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Now I will meditate on your wonderful works. 
They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. I'd like to leave this vision with you that our actions today will impact the generations to come. I'm excited for the next 10 years. Come on, we've just seen that 10-year progression. I'm excited to see more young people step into their destinies in the coming years. That will mean more mentors are needed to shepherd, shepherd our growing flock. But let us dream for the next 10 years, shall we, of destinies, fulfilled promises, lived out, both young and old come to experience the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for our 10th anniversary, I'd like to charge us with this charge. Let us build this church, build this city, build this world that we all live in for the sake of our generation, the generations to come unto eternity and the return of our Lord. We go from generation to generations.